0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 24 of the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brady and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello. Mark Stockley. Hi. And Matt Boddy. Hola. World. Oh. Hello everyone. Coming up on today's show, Mark talks sextortion, Matt talks malvertising and Duck discusses how passwords can look random but not be random at all. What have you been up to this week, guys?
1: I went to... The Cloud and Cybersecurity Expo in London, and I gave a talk called When the Cloud Attacks. And all I wish is they had bigger aisles at the show. It was very cramped,
2: but it was fun.
0: Mark, you had something interesting to say, did you?
2: I've been speaking to a friend of the show, uh, Peter McKenzie, who is Sophos' global malware escalation manager. Uh, and he was talking about Trickbot. Uh, Trickbot is like the, the worst network worm in the world at the moment. Uh, And something very interesting is happening with TrickBot. So it seems like there have been a rash of people being struck down with Ryuk ransomware that's being spread through TrickBot. His message to everybody is, if you're dealing with TrickBot infections, get them sorted out right now. Quite often this uh, comes from unprotected machines. So you have an infection on on an unprotected machine and it's trying desperately to infect everything else on your network. So you know it's there because of all the detections you're getting on your protected machine. That is obviously an open sore in your network. Um, And if it's used to deploy real ransomware, you could see yourself facing some very, very stiff demands indeed. Um, And what uh, we've seen very recently is ransoms in excess of a million dollars being demanded. So don't let TrickBot persist in your network. Get it sorted.
0: Also, in interesting news this week, my Mac is now back. Oh yeah, <laughs> Great.
3: cool.
0: Given the success of Matt's comments of the week last week, we thought we'd make it regular. I've taken it over. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> boots and cats and boots and cats and boots and cats
0: and
3: oh, comments of the
2: week!
3: Boots and cats and boots.
2: <laughs> These comments better be good. They're really not. To be <about>
0: No, there are a couple of interesting comments on the article that we had on data left on second-hand USB keys. Um, they were suggesting what we should do with them. Um, Sprite said, uh, if the USB drives are old enough to sell off, there is a device called a vice. Just put the USB into it, tighten it and keep turning, keep turning, keep turning. It's an option. Um, Samantha asked, what a waste of precious and getting scarcer minerals and metals. Surely it's not that difficult to zero fill them in the background and then reuse or recycle them.
1: If you're going to reuse them yourself, I don't have any problem with that, but it is actually quite expensive and time consuming reliably to wipe stuff that you've got if you want to hand it on to somebody else.
2: I think that's a great point about sort of reusing the USB keys, but I would say ask yourself if you need one in the first place. And if you're a company doling out USB keys, ask yourself whether or not that's a really responsible thing to do.
0: Mark, we've been talking about sextortion again this week. Do you want to run us through the story?
2: Sure. Um, So users are receiving emails uh, that uh, purport to come from hackers who say they've used malware to hack into the recipient's webcam and film them visiting porn websites. The emails begin, final warning. You have the last chance to save your social life. I am not kidding. I give you the last 72 hours to make the payment before I send the video to all your friends and associates. The email goes on to explain uh, that the hacker who sent it to you, the so-called hacker who sent it to you, has uh, stolen your address book. And they're demanding a ransom of about half a Bitcoin, which is around $2,000. US And then it cranks up the pressure by saying, do not try to cheat me. As soon as you open this email, I will know you opened it. And the crowning glory, the proof, quote unquote, that's supposed to convince you that this is really about you and not just some spam, is that it uses your name and your email address. And it even claims inside the body of the email to have a specific video file, which is your namemp 4 And of course, none of this is true. These are all just clever social engineering tactics that are trying to convince you using powerful emotions and a sense of urgency to go and do something rash and pay a total stranger some money for no reason at all.
0: That's not a new thing, though, is it?
2: No, it isn't. So we started seeing these emails... Uh, around last summer and this is just the latest one in a craze um, for sprinkling personal information into these sorts of emails to try and give them a bit of added legitimacy so in the past we've seen other things used as proof in these emails so it started with passwords so we know you know there are so many breached passwords out there that it's not difficult to find a password And who it belongs to, you know, an out-of-date password that maybe you used a decade ago, but you'll still recognise. So the people behind these scams will send you emails and they'll use an old password of yours to make it seem like they know something about you. Um, These emails have included phone numbers. And the most potent one seems to be um, when they send emails from your own address. We all know that it's very, very easy to fake where an email has come from, but it's very, very persuasive. And uh, on Naked Security, we're getting a steady stream of comments from people who are just kind of looking to reassure themselves that this stuff isn't true. And we even get comments from people who don't watch porn and don't have webcams. And, you know, it can rattle even those people, Mm. which is just kind of shows you the emotions that are involved in this kind of thing. Yeah, because if you think that crooks have got malware on your computer, so even if they're telling lies about
1: the webcam, if there is malware there, what else could they have got? Because people will have heard of keyloggers where they've got your keystrokes and maybe they've got your passwords. They'll have heard of ransomware or maybe even experienced it where they scramble your files. They know that data breaches involve files getting uploaded from your computer and so on. These emails are very confronting, aren't they? Yeah. Basically, it's not just that it's accusing you of doing something sort of sexually embarrassing. It's saying, we put malware on your computer. You didn't realize. Here's the proof. Now, what
2: are you going to do about it to make it go away? Better pay us money. And I think it also shows that, um, you know, people have a very personal relationship with their computer and they have a very personal relationship with the websites that they visit and things like that. So the way that people tend to interact with websites is they they behave as if they're the only people that use that website. Um, And I think the same thing is true of email. So when you receive an email and it says your name on it and we've created a file which has got your name on it. You don't, when you read that, see the other million emails that were sent in the same campaign. Right. There's no exposure to that. You know, the spammers know that they have just sent as many people as they can one of these emails, but you get one and it's got your name on it. That's why letting
1: everybody know that there are millions of these going around, that does help to answer, why me?
3: Yeah, yeah. the answer is because it's you and 100,000 million other people. And everyone can think back to something weird that they've looked at online, whether it's porn or not.
0: I had a good one over the weekend. Not a good one, a bit gross. So I had an email from the CIA. Um, Probably not really the CIA. Um, So they said they were a technical collection officer working for the Central Intelligence Agency. It's come to my attention that your personal details, including your email address, are listed in case. And then it gives a number. Uh, which is part of a large international operation set to arrest more than 2,000 individuals suspected of paedophilia. So what they're saying is that they've seen me, or that I've been distributing and storing uh, pornographic electronic materials involving underage children. They're saying in the attachment that they've got my personal details, my home address, my work address, and a list of relatives and their contact information, and lots of data. Your ISP, ISP web browsing history, DNS queries, history, and connection logs. Deep Web. onion browsing and or collection sharing, online chatroom logs and social media activity logs. So they're basically, they want me to pay a lot of money. They want me to pay 10,000 US dollars.
1: Oh, so this person is claiming to be corrupt.
0: So I am one of several pe- people who have access to these documents and I have enough security clearance to amend and remove your details from this case. Here is my proposition. Pay this money to this Bitcoin address and I'll remove your details. It's quite
1: an interesting alternative twist, yeah. isn't it? In one, they're saying, if you pay me and I'll delete the file. In this case, it's sort of, well, I'm in law enforcement. And if you pay me, I'll make the charges go
0: yeah. away. What we were talking about earlier is that a lot, of these, a lot of these cases, the ones that Mark was talking about, there are a lot of people that access porn online. Yeah. Um, and so that appeals to people that are worried about that having happened to them. This is... Most people won't have looked at child porn, but yeah, it's scary because if they're saying they've got your relatives' addresses.
1: Yeah, maybe you're it's thinking, well,
0: Yeah. It
1: does seem a little bit over the top, so I don't imagine that people would easily fall for that.
0: It also says, please do not contact me. This don't call there. me at the CIA.
1: Yeah, it's quite confronting that, isn't it? Mm. It's, uh,
2: why me?
0: So what's the advice here, Mark?
2: Don't engage.
3: Don't reply. Don't worry about it. Isn't there some way you could make some rhyme <laughs> out of that?
0: Or or some kind of song.
3: A song. Oh. A song out of that exact messaging. So just saying it Are wasn't you, enough?
0: No, because I recorded it. Do you oh. not want it you don't want to sing on it right now? You don't want to sing on it? No no, I'll, I'll
1: go with the recorded one. Okay. At least I know what it says. Just cut it in. Don't engage and don't reply this sort of thing's not funny.
0: Don't get worried, don't be scared, and don't send any money. It sounds like you've been auto-tubed there, Duck. Yeah, it's
1: like <laughs> me doing my
3: best share impression.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, there you go. It's that open source lyrics that anyone can use. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, can you recommend any good beatboxes? <laughs> oh, I know one. MCMB right here. <laughs> MC Matt Body.
2: So, Duck, aside it's from your dark. song, do you have any other advice? I do, because
1: um, this comes from David Kay, who wrote a comment on the article we wrote about this on Naked Security. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, he said, you know, is there any way to report this? And there is. the F- In the U.S., he was specifically asking, the FBI operates a service called the Internet Crime Complaint Centre. And the good news is very easy to use, very easy to find website, ic3.gov. And as David Kay, after we told him that, he came back and said, thanks a lot for that. Uh, I did report it. It probably won't do anything, but it can't hurt. And good on you. That's exactly the way I feel about this. If we speak out about, you know, I'm one of many people who got this, then that does help people realise it's not just me. It's not something I did wrong. I'm one of many people getting targeted.
0: Doc, you were talking about this issue in Naked Security Live this week as well, weren't you? We were. So you can put the link. I know
1: where this is going. Doc (laughs) will put the
0: link in the show notes.
3: Yeah, sure.
0: Right, Matt. Yes. Online ads.
3: Online ads, although slightly annoying, we all know them. We've all been to websites where an advert has been appearing in the bottom corner or in the top corner or any corner or the centre of the page. anywhere on the page, an advert could be. All of those. All of those. <laughs> yeah. all Sometimes of these. at the same time. <laughs> Sometimes at the same time. And, and it, it's understood, it's a way that websites tend to generate money, but every so often, there's a category of advertising that is, uh, the scorn upon the advertising industry called malvertising. Malvertising is a way that some sort of cr- cyber criminal has found a way to worm their way inside of, uh, a, a, of an advert, whether that's their own paid for and published advert or whether it is a, um, whether it's somebody else's advert that they've managed to, to get into via some means that we'll talk about in a moment. And, Within that advert, they are then redirecting that person that's visiting that web page to some sort of malware. So essentially, their, their aim is to exploit their end user or exploit um, the browser or get that user to download something that they wouldn't expect to be downloading um, to, to do something malicious on their device. So um, actually, Doc, you wrote a good article about this a while ago where you detailed the steps that a, that a, that a malvertiser may take So the crook will hack an ad delivery server or they'll sign a fraudulent contract with no intention of complying with the rules of that contract. And then that crook will upload their ad with malicious content such as Booby Trap, JavaScript or Flash. Then that ad network will accept the ad and insert it into the database of options to serve various customers. Now, this section here where they're injecting that ad within their ad network makes it really difficult to track. Essentially, as far as the website's concerned, there's a little box
2: and some code. And then it makes a bunch of decisions about what ad it's going to display in that box. So it's a very, very complex process that determines which ad gets injected into that slot right at the last minute. And that's why advertising can slow down websites so much because this, the website's waiting for that decision to be made. And then what that gives the malvertiser is this incredibly potent distribution network because if you can get yourself into the content distribution network, the network itself will distribute your malware so it's it's a giant amplification system, just as it is for advertisers. You can put your malware in the right place; it can end up seeing you know hundreds of thousands of
3: users. And that actually happened uh, not all that long ago with the likes of uh, Forbes and the Daily Mail. Uh, in 2015, they both had. They they both had malvertising on their webpage, so unfortunately the third-party ad network was compromised in some way or another, and that meant that these adverts were showing up, which eventually attempted to compromise the readers of those websites. Anybody who's using that ad network, all of those sites simultaneously are in trouble. Yeah. So so what Google have said that they're doing is they've said that in in future versions of Chrome, they are going to not allow that automatic uh, download of that remote content unless you click on it. So presumably if it pulls in vanilla HTML or bona fide
1: CSS, that'll be fine. But if inside the little window that Mark talked about, which is where the ad would go, if whatever is in there then initiates a download by fair means or foul, it'll just go, nah. Yeah. And you'll still be able to download things if you want to, but it shouldn't take you by surprise.
2: What I like about it is I think it shows the direction of travel with browser vendors. So yeah. it happens with Chrome and it happens with Firefox. The, over the last few years, there's been a definite push to obsolete things that are just working the wrong way. So a decade, decade and a half ago, it was all about standards compliance and desperately trying to get internet explorer to be standards compliant and everybody was acting like a role model to follow the standards to the letter and saying microsoft you should be doing the same as this and what's happening now is that the browser vendors are looking at those standards and they're going you know what nobody's using this feature for the purpose it was intended the the standard is over would and we've seen it with a few things the one that sticks in my mind is the battery life uh, indicator so your your browser is allowed to ask your laptop or your mobile phone how much battery life you've got, but it can find out to an extraordinarily high precision, yeah. like millions and millions of uh, points of precision, and that actually makes quite an effective ID, particularly when you bundle hmm. it up with a bunch of other stuff for fingerprinting, which allows you to so you can track someone's progress around the web without using cookies, just by looking at how much battery life they've got. Because the chances of any two visitors having the same amount of battery life, precisely the same amount of battery life, is incredibly low. And I think it was the Firefox team first kind of unearthed this. And they said, you know what, nobody is using this for any good purpose. The only people who are using this uh, are actually bad guys who are using this for fingerprinting. Firefox announced
1: they're going to take something out of the Tor project, aren't they, about what they call letterboxing, where they don't report the precise size of your browser. So if you've got your browser window at some weird amount like 783 by 429 pixels and then you keep browsing, nobody else probably has exactly that same dimensions. So they're going to start saying, you know what, 700 by 400 is good enough. And they're going to start getting some standardized sizes so that you don't look the same every time. If 99.999% of the uses are dishonest, disingenuous, evil minded, then, you know, the rest of us just have to say we'll give it up
2: yeah there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff in firefox from the tor project now because they have this um they have this sort of back to front process because the tor browser is built from firefox and so it's essentially firefox plus a bunch of extra privacy features and what they've started to do now is they're moving the privacy features upstream into firefox yeah so they put them in firefox and then they switch them off mm. and then they get into the Tor browser and then they're switched on. So they're off by default in Firefox and on by default in the Tor browser. And it makes it easier to maintain because the Tor developers then don't have to maintain all these extra patches on top of Firefox because their stuff's already in there. The The Firefox developers can then look at those individual features and go, right, are our users ready for this now? And it's dead exactly, easy for them to yeah. flick on. And that's what happened with this the letterboxing. And, and the same
1: with this, with this Chromium feature saying, well... Let's be stricter about downloads and iframes. If it reduces some of them, that's got to help everybody. Except the crooks. (laughs) We like that.
0: (laughs) Duck, you wrote an interesting story a couple of weeks ago about randomness and passwords. Can you talk us through it?
1: Yes, this is, it's not really news anymore, but I thought it was quite interesting because it kind of says that sometimes things that you look at that are obviously okay aren't the long version of the story is it came out of Have I Been Pwned, which is a website that many of our listeners will know about. It's run by a guy out of Queensland and Australia called Troy Hunt. And he collates and uniqueifies all of the data that gets dumped in data breaches that have things like email addresses, passwords and so on. And the idea is you can go to his site and in a secure way you can search to see which of your account details may or may not be known to crooks. He has more entries in his database than there are people in the planet. Mm-hmm. And he actually pa- passed that seven point six billion if you don't mind sometime about a week ago and of course, when you look at the password lists that go with those accounts, where they're known, the top ones you can imagine the top one is one two three four five six but somebody thought well what about the what about the stuff lower down the list and the outlier that somebody spotted i'll read it out it was j i thirty two k seven a A83. a eight three You think of that, you think that's got to be a password manager. It's got to be a random number generator. It's got to be fine. But yet this appeared, I think, 141 times in the database, far more than you would expect if it was random. But it turns out that if you type that character sequence in Roman letters on a Taiwanese keyboard, it spells out my password, (laughs) which, by the way, is the 38,000th most common password in have I been pwned for those of us who use Latin scripts. So it just goes to show, firstly, that that, uh, bad password habits are not unique to the Western world and people using Latin script. Uh, People in Taiwan are doing this as well. But it's also that when it comes to randomness and making choices that people aren't going to guess, the fact that it looks like something somebody just made up doesn't mean it is. And even if they do just make it up by banging away on the keyboard, they probably aren't going to get something very random. Therefore, Randomness really matters, as the old joke puts it. It's so
2: important, it should not be less chance. And I think one of the lessons from this story is that the judge of randomness is not you. Absolutely. So you look at that. I mean, I would look at that and I would say, yeah, randomly generated password. But it's easy to get a computer to sift through massive buckets of numbers and and find out whether something is genuinely random, uh, whether there's a genuine random distribution or... There's some kind of pattern. Yes, and that's the problem with You
1: can never determine that our number is random just by looking at it on its own. Because it could be that that was generated by a password manager that had a bug in it that got stuck and generated that over and over and over and over again. The other problem with randomness is that it is very hard to measure which is a very long-winded way of saying, use a password manager, guys. They do choose randomly, and they do choose well. And while you're about it, use two-factor authentication, because then if your password is compromised, you've got a little extra layer of protection.
2: It actually reminds me of a story I heard about the iPods when they first came out, the Apple iPod, the precursor to the iPhone, kind of a music player of about the same size as an iPhone. And they had a shuffle function, which at the time was new. And you press shuffle, and it plays your music at random. And it genuinely plays your music at random, which means there's a chance that you're going to hear the same song twice in a row because that's what randomness actually looks like. Yeah. But people hear that and they go, there's something wrong with my iPod. Mm. And then they complain to Apple. So Apple had to change its randomness function for the shuffle to make it less random so that it, it conformed to what people's expectation of randomness was rather than true randomness.
3: I bet that same issue didn't happen on the uh, Microsoft I Zune.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Zune, I'm pretty sure the Zune had other issues. <laughs> yeah. The worst thing about the Zune was actually seeing the product placement that went with it, as they tried very hard to make it achingly cool. I can't remember what the platform was, but I think it was an Atari game that's notorious for being. It was so bad that they actually recalled
1: all the cartridges crushed them with a steamroller and tipped them into landfill and recently i actually went and dug up the landfill yeah. and went through it and found some intact and you know people they were actually sought after so you never know zunes
3: may be worth several tens of dollars in their times in... yet to come i'm telling you i'm mm. going to come in my zune next week i'm going to see if i can get one on ebay
0: get one on ebay yeah, yeah. I'll
3: have i dare you. yeah be a good thing okay
0: that's about all from us this week. Duck, where can we find you on social media?
2: At DuckBlog on Twitter. Mark? Oh, at Internet of
0: Hens. And at Mark Stockley. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Matt?
3: At InfoSecBody on Twitter and Instagram.
0: How how are the jokes going on Instagram? Did you want, do you want to do your... Uh... Go on. You No, no do your stew joke. It's
3: time to finish Do it your stew joke. You can't introduce a joke by saying "do your stew joke," okay. because then that takes the joke out. Do it. another one. Can we one cut out? the "do your joke" yeah. out and then I'll do it? Okay. So I tried to set my password to beef stew, but the computer came back and it said, "password not strong enough." Oh, I'm sure you've done before.
0: Of course, yes. I'm at Anna Brady on Twitter, and we are of course at Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Naked Security. Please rate and review our podcast. It helps boost us up the charts and allows other people to find us. You can tweet us at Naked Security with suggestions for the podcast and you can email us at tips at And until next time, stay secure. secure, world.
3: Oh yeah, that's got to make it in this time. If Anna did it, I'm going to be so impressed if you managed to edit that out.
0: Sorry, <laughs> duck. <laughs> Sorry, duck.
3: <laughs> Password not off. The man's a
1: buffoon.